Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvel. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Here we go, Sean. Bring out the troubadours. We have uh, knocked up our half century, the 50th episode of the Few Podcast. How cool is that? 50 not out, mate. 50 not out. It's amazing, isn't it? If you think about it, you know, getting into the, the top five podcasts globally, you know, within a, about six or seven months from, a, from an idea that germinated from nothing, really. Yeah. You know, demonstrates go straight to your point about showing up right we've just toiled away at this absolute amateurs and it's been great what, what an opportunity we've got to speak to some incredible people absolutely absolutely it's been uh, it's been incredible so far the first 50 and uh looking forward to seeing the you know, and hearing the conversations for the next 50 and, and beyond that as well absolutely mate we got rained out a little bit for a few few months there we had to slow the ship down with all the covid stuff but we got a pretty good, uh, pretty good guest today, I reckon, to mark the fiftieth. We're talking to somebody that has a little bit of knowledge of spanning generations, yeah, looking looking to the future as well as uh, look, looking at the past, and already achieving some pretty significant goals at a very young age. And for a lot of us, we talk about you know, living our life's purpose and finding our life's purpose as a as a journey through life and getting to there a little bit later on. But for our guest today, he kind of hit it. Pretty quickly, yeah. You know, at the uh, at the age of eighteen, as well as having a, a couple of links that you and I are you're interested in. Yeah. Interesting that we've got another aviator. I'm always fascinated why aviation and passion go together, and people in aviation tend to kind of do passion things. So anyway, uh, with no no further ado, let's introduce our guest today, Lockie Smart. Lockie, uh, welcome to the show, Legend. Super glad to have you on the few. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, mate. Really, really looking forward to the discussion today. And uh, as Boo said, you know, you hit a pretty significant milestone at 18. And um, for those of you that don't know you and are, and are listening to this episode, give us the, uh, I suppose, the elevator rundown. What did you set out to do and what did you ultimately achieve when you were 18? Sure. Um, when I was 18, so that was 2016, I uh, set out to become the youngest pilot to fly solo around the world. And it was a dream of mine for a while, but something took me two and a half years to plan. It wasn't something that I just came up with the idea and took off the next day. We had to find nearly half a million dollars worth of funds in, in sponsorship and fundraising. And then, of course, I had to learn how to be a very efficient pilot. That's very independent. I didn't have a lot of facilities at my fingertips to help make this happen. So I needed to learn to deal with a lot of situations and overcome some pretty big hurdles. But it was a hell of a journey. So really, you were 15 or 16 when you made the kind of decision to go, you know what, I really want, I'd really love to do this. If it took you two and a half years and you were 18 when you executed it, you've actually knuckled down for that two and a half years to take again an idea and make it a reality. Yeah, I was, it was about two months before my 16th birthday. I was in grade 11 when I came up with the idea. And then, yeah, it wasn't until, until I was 18 that I pulled it off. Clearly not paying attention in class, mate. Yeah, not paying attention in the classroom. That's right. Yeah, here's your here's your periodic table. Which what what elements are the are the, are the heaviest elements? Yeah, I'm going to fly around the world. Yeah. 
Yeah, as they say, get your head out of the clouds. But I guess your uh, your head really and truly was in the clouds. But but it's it, it blows my mind. So you were in a single engine aeroplane on your own, flew around the world, took over forty days, as I as I understand it. You know, I mean, my dad was a was a has been a pilot his whole life. He wanted me to kind of follow in his footsteps. And when I was I think seventeen, I ended up getting up there and doing some flying lessons and getting to the solo point and really just feeling like I was going to crush the controls with my white knuckle treatment I was giving to them and, and just wasn't my thing. I just <laughs> did not sit well yeah. with me, the concept of flying around in a tiny little, you know, metal thing with a little engine on the front. Just the control freak in you, Sean. Can't let go. Must put airplane where it, where it needs to go. Uh, but to, to, go it, back to, your, to, to go back to your point, Sean, you made a good one about you're not allowed to fly when you're 16. Rules are actually you can fly whenever you want. Uh, so, so when did you start, Lockie? Because I started flying when I was fourteen, and and I think you know pilots are kind of dreamer type personalities. But maybe share that part of your story as well, because it's kind of left field, right? And I'm sure when, when you're at school, yeah, you know, people thought you're a bit weird for having this this dream. So when did like how old were you actually when you when you got that first clocked up that first one yeah, that first hour was on my 14th birthday, actually, same as, same as you. So my, I'd loved aeroplanes since I was a little kid. My parents separated when I was two, and, and during that messy stage, mum would take me out to Sunshine Coast Airport, and I'd sit there and watch the planes take off and land with a bucket of hot chips, and I just thought, this is the coolest thing in the world. Nothing ever changed from when I was two till now. I still think planes are the coolest thing in the world. And then uh, for my 14th birthday, dad got me a trial introductory flight for my birthday present. So like 20 minutes hands-on experience in the airplane. And as soon as my hands hit those controls, like just ding, light bulb went off. That's it. I'm going to, I'm going to be a pilot. But what didn't (laughs) ding in my head was the fact that flying is very expensive and my family didn't have a lot of money. And so to be able to learn to fly, I had to get creative. You know, I was, I'd go and wash airplanes, clean hangars, do admin work, work experience, anything I could do. I worked part-time jobs, several of them, anything I could do to scrape a dollar together or earn enough goodwill with someone who owned an airplane that I could get my next hour in the sky. And I did that to get up to my sort of solo stage, which I did at 16, which at that stage was the youngest you could do in general aviation. I think they've dropped it to 15 now. And um, yeah, so my my parents would drive me to the airport because I was on my learner's permit and then I'd go and fly an airplane on my own and then they'd supervise me (laughs) and drive home. It's kind of funny that, isn't it? It just just makes makes the mind boggle, makes the mind boggle that you you can't drive a car but you can fly an airplane uh, around in the sky on your own uh, at the same at the same age. But um, tell us a little bit, a little bit of what you learnt on that journey. Like, what are the, some of the the biggest lessons you took away? Let's say first and foremost in the preparation stage of getting off the ground, literally for that that uh, that trip. And then, what did you learn on the trip? You know, during that uh, that actual, I imagine, somewhat stressful, challenging enjoyable all those emotions pull together in that in that period of time that you were flying around the world a lot of lessons um i guess in in the planning stage the first lesson i learned the two of them that really stuck out was that you, you can't most of life you can't do alone like as much as it was a solo flight and a solo adventure uh, i wasn't going to be able to do it on my own both from a financial perspective and from just a, a management perspective i was 15 16 still learning a lot about life and still am and so i needed help and I was a bit afraid to ask for help at first because, you know, it's confronting to ask people for helping you achieve your dream. But it turns out people really buy into that passion. And so after I started planning and got really serious, my parents bought, you know, bought into the trip after three months. They really believed that I was going to do it. 
So they started helping me and I thought the place to start aside from the flying was I need to find some money because I figured out after I started planning, it was going to cost a lot of money. And I thought, who wouldn't want to sponsor this trip? I mean, a, a go-getter Aussie kid wanting to fly around the world. I thought everyone would be busting to give me their money. Which <laughs> was... And so I started contacting companies, just people I thought might be interested in this sort of thing. And I sent out email after email, got meeting after meeting. And I'd walk into the office, shake his or her hand, say, G'day, my name's Lockie. I'm 15, I'm 16 now. In a couple of years, I'm going to fly around the world. And this great message to young people about setting and achieving high goals but I need your help to do it and I'd love you to be on my team. And they said, no. <laughs> okay, well, all right. You know, first one doesn't go well. Try the second one and the third one. And for an entire 12 months, I busted my backside and worked incredibly hard and I didn't get a single dollar. Wow. Um, not one dollar of, of sponsorship. And I thought that's probably a good time to give up. You know, if I can't get a dollar in 12 months, how am I supposed to get nearly 500,000 in the next 18? My dad, you know, he's taught me a lot. Uh, he started the business that I work in now. And if he learned anything during his business experience, it was that when you think you're at the end of the line, you've usually got a little bit left in reserve. And in aviation, we count on those reserves with fuel planning particularly. But for him, he, was, he said, just give it one more month when I wanted to give up. And in that next month, we got our first sponsor on board. And just when I wanted to give up was, you know, the, the darkest before the dawn, as they say. And from there, we're able to snowball. I mean, once one person had bought in and, and believed in the trip, we went from the next sponsor to the next sponsor. And eventually they said, yeah, and I'd walk into their office and I'd say, good day, my name's Lockie. I'm 17 now. Next year, I'm going to fly around the world. We've got a great team of sponsors behind us, including Thompson Gear Law that just signed up and a number of others. The number of others was like mom and dad, but they didn't need to know that. <laughs> and then, um, they'd say, you know what? Okay, we'll jump on board too. Yeah, and then Pete, I guess once, once that's what I've seen too is um, – Having been in the game, you know, when you raise capital for businesses and things like that, you know, business sense rather than a, you know, an ex, uh, I suppose a, a, a situation like yours is a type of business uh, investment, I guess, a branding and exercise yeah. and things like that. But is that that once you've got someone on board and someone else is willing to take the risk, straight away your chances have gone up tenfold that somebody else will now back you as well. And it's just getting exactly that right. first one across the line. And as you said, you could have given up then and it wouldn't have happened. But you, you know, it was great of your dad to say, just, just make, give it one more month. And yeah. as soon as you got that, your confidence would have come back. Other people's confidence would have gone up because somebody else is backing you and off you were, you know, ready to go. Exactly. Right. And that's the number one reason that most young people are not willing to dream as big perhaps as they could is because they don't have any runs on the board yet. And getting that first run on the board is usually a lot harder than getting the 10th or the 20th run on the board. Absolutely. It's just over, overcoming that first hurdle. So, yeah, that's um, – I mean, that was the first lesson I learned about on the, in the planning stage was that perseverance and asking for help are the hard to do. But once you've sort of started to get those first runs on the board, they're going to keep coming. I've got a philosophy, and I can't explain it, but I, I do think the universe works in this certain way, which is until you hit that lowest ebb, until you absolutely invest everything you have for a no return, does it finally say, right, I'm going to throw you a bone. Here's, here's the start. And you only start your journey yeah. right when you've, when you've invested everything of your being, your, your essence yes. into it. You know, I think that's the, that's the piece about purpose that I think people don't really understand. Purpose isn't there to make you feel good. Purpose is there to pull you out of the hole when you feel like that's the end of the journey. And, and that, that's a great example. It was, and Sean, you said it as well. And it's a, 
it's a metaphor for how business works, right? Like you've, you've got a business idea, a product, you've got something, some idea, you want to do it. You're always starting from zero. Uh, even when you've got runs on the board, you're starting from zero if something's new. Uh, so that whole journey to raise the money to inspire people into a story, it's really anything in life, right? Like anything, if it's inspiring enough, you'll get people on board. It, it might be you as the under nines coach, right, for your kids' football team. Uh, and they need some new jerseys. And if you can inspire people into that, you, you can do it. So what do, you, what do you think are the keys for people that maybe they're introverted or maybe they feel that they, they can't inspire or tell a story? Like what would, what would be some kind of hacks there, Lockie, that you've learned along the way in terms of getting people to buy into your purpose? I think it's being true to yourself and what a lot of people don't do is sit down and understand who they are and what they stand for. And it's, it's different for everyone. You know, it's like your favorite flavor of ice cream. Mine is chalk mint, but yours might be strawberry. And that doesn't mean that you're wrong or I'm wrong. We're just different people. But the, the problem a lot of people do is they, they spend so much time trying to be someone else and not focusing on their own values and what's important to them that the authenticity isn't there and people don't buy into things that aren't authentic. And a great example is if you look at you know, uh, when I do speeches for school students, I, I call it playing the comparison game. And it's, you know, if we take Chris Hemsworth, very successful man, and if you take Usain Bolt, also a very successful man, and if you take Mother Teresa, a very successful woman. But these three people have got nothing in common. Like they're different backgrounds, genders, races, nationalities, ages, everything's different. But we would deem them all to be successful and have great compassion and, and great impact on the world. But if you use the metrics of success, the measure of success for Chris Hemsworth against Usain Bolt, you know, his ability to act really well is what makes Chris successful. If you use that against Usain Bolt, if you've seen his Optisads, you'd know he's no elite actor. Likewise, if you did the other way around, used Usain Bolt's metric against Mother Teresa, she wouldn't be deemed successful because what they did really well is they understood what made them them and what made them special. And as soon as they accepted their core values and started passing that out to the world and living their life with passion, people started to buy into them. But if you're too busy trying to be someone else, if, if Chris was trying to be Usain and Usain was trying to be Mother Teresa, then they wouldn't have had the success that they had. So it's about knowing who you are, what's important to you and what makes you special. When you start living that authentic life, people start to buy into that. Look, there's an uh, a image or a, uh, you know, something I've seen come up numerous times in, it, in books and, and on, on uh, Facebook and things like that is it has a picture and it has an elephant, you know, a monkey, a fish in a bowl and, a, and a, you know, a sheep or something. And it says, right now, for today's test, everyone needs to climb that tree. Right? And this is that, that thing of trying to, I think uh, particularly school systems and things, effectively trying to get people to fit into a box. And that's one of the things that I learned early on in school, you know, starting my first business just before my 13th birthday and I was washing cars in, in the drive. I think it was the first car wash cafe in Australia at that point in time. And I just did that. I went and talked to people and then it, didn't, it wasn't consistent enough. So then I put flyers out and ended up getting consistent, you know, every fortnight or every four weeks washing people's cars and doing really well out of it financially and and just doing something different and, and not trying to conform to the box that other people do. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but what I did is I learned very quickly, you got to keep asking until you get a yes. Because a no is just another step towards the first yes or the next yes. And that grit and that tenacity and that, I think that's something that that resilience, the ability to bounce back after getting a no or getting what could feel like a, a deep rejection. And I'm not just talking about kids. I'm not talking about, you know, people at school. I'm talking about people at uh, 30, 40, 50 in business and they try and win a big client over, you know, and and, and it doesn't happen. You know, we just had a, a thing with a, a major player in one of our businesses and uh, we ended up coming second. And so it was a no. 
for this you know next three year contract or something. And so we missed out by three cents an item on one from one of our businesses. And I was like, ah, damn it, that's disappointing. But with the resilience I've trained myself with, I'm like, nothing I can do about it. Move on. Years ago, when I was you know not trained in that and not very good at that, that would have you know, felt like a, a proverbial punch in the guts and, and winded me for some time. Like, oh, this would have been a great opportunity. We missed out on it. It's like, well, that one wasn't meant to be. So where can we apply our energy, you know, our attention in our business or attention in our life? And, and I love the fact that you talked about, you know, so what, what's, you know, the success, the concept of success. And one of the things that, that I'm big advocate for and teach is people coming up with their own definition. You know, you want to have your own purpose, but also how do you define being successful is it that you run fast? Is it you're a great actor? No. Or is it the fact that I, you know, me, I define success as the, the freedom to choose and the impact I have on those around me. Right? It's got nothing to do with money or status or anything else. It's just yep. how do I feel successful today? And that's aligned to my purpose of helping people succeed. So for me, that concept of living that, having that opportunity to do this, do a podcast today with yourself and with Boo and to go and do events and speak and mentor and guide people is that's purpose for me is, and that's my purpose. Whereas yours is different. Boo's is different. And everyone's is like their fingerprint. Yeah, exactly. It's unique to everyone. And that's the thing is that you shouldn't spend, and this is a problem with social media is we spend so much time looking at everybody else's version of success. We sometimes don't take enough time to understand what our own is. Well, a lot of that success is manufactured too. I mean, social media. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Completely, completely uh, fabricated. Uh, one of the things that, Lockie, I think you learn in aviation, and I'd like to use it again as a metaphor to help people understand life, is because it's a passion, so you're intrinsically motivated. No one needs to tell you to go flying. No one needs to tell you to start it. You, you're self-motivated, right? How comfortable do you get with mistakes and things being out of your control when you're in aviation? I mean, it's, it's pretty much your entire domain. The minute you're airborne, that's the world you operate in, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one of my grade 12 English assessments, we had to write a three-minute speech and I had to public speaking back then. So if you had told me today I'd do it for a job, I would have laughed at you. But it was to write a, a short speech about setbacks being the foundations to success. And that has stuck with me the whole time. Like Every time we fail is that it's a learning opportunity or we make a mistake. If we don't learn from it, then it is a failure. But if we do learn from it, then really it's the next step towards our success. And aviation is no is one of the prime examples of that. I mean, you spend, especially during your training years, you spend a lot of time making a lot of mistakes and learning from those to make you a better pilot. And for me, I mean, up until that stage, I was doing a flight, a test flight before I took off from the world flight. And I was just test flying the airplane around Australia. And I had the first two days of flying were just breeze you know i was on autopilot eating snacks drinking water having like just the best time flying from the east coast to australia out past airs rock and uluru down south into victoria and i thought this long range flying thing's a breeze you know <laughs> like this whole world flight's going to be like this i'm going to come back fat and i'm going to be really happy but i got to the third day and the weather was not forecast to be so great i was supposed to fly from bendigo down to tasmania across the bass strait land in tassie refuel and come back um, in my Cirrus SR22. So for those people listening that don't know, it's a single engine propeller driven aircraft normally has four seats. And I took the back seats out to put extra fuel tanks in. And so this airplane I was supposed to fly across and, and the North coast of Tassie was supposed to have really bad weather. So I thought I'll put extra fuel on board. My backup plan is that if I can't get to Tassie because the weather's bad, I'll turn around and come back to Melbourne. And so I took off out of Bendigo, flew over the top of Melbourne, down across the Bass Strait. And sure enough, 
there's this massive line of thunderstorms and you can just see pillar after pillar, like the type of weather that we as pilots would look at and say, okay, then that's time to turn around and go home. Don't want to go into that. And because I'm in a little airplane, I can't get over the top of it either because the propeller, it's a, it's a naturally aspirated piston engine. It, it can't operate that high. And so I should have turned around and gone back to Melbourne, but being young and relatively inexperienced, I wanted to test my limits and the limits of the airplane. And I looked at my iPad and I had the weather radar, somehow I had 4G signal at that stage. I was looking at the weather radar and it said that there was a gap between two of the storms. And so I punched my Cirrus into the cloud and hoped I was heading into the gap. And it was a stupid mistake. Any pilot would tell you that you shouldn't have done that. And I knew afterwards, I knew at the time I shouldn't do it, but I wanted to learn and push myself a little bit. And as I got into the cloud, the plane started to get thrown around a little bit and it, wasn't, it was fine though. I'd flown in a lot of instrument conditions before. And then it got to a stage where I was about four minutes in and it just went bang. All the loose objects in the cockpit went flying, hit the roof. I was trying to tuck away my phone and stuff that could break so nothing would hit me in the head. Then the autopilot failed. My engine instruments failed. I was down to hand flying off the artificial horizon, one of the few instruments that was left working, in the middle of a thunderstorm right above the mountains of the north coast of Tasmania as ice started to build up on my wings, which for airplanes is very bad. And it was the worst mistake I'd ever made my whole life. Biggest failure, worst decision. Anyway, so I contacted air traffic control and they gave me some vectors or some headings and altitudes to fly at. And they helped guide me down around the mountains towards Launceston. And then I hand flew the precision approach in like 65 kilometer an hour gusting winds, much too high for this airplane, but I had to put it on the ground because things were breaking. Landed the airplane safely, just and then I was shaking. I, I got out of the airplane, my hands were like vibrating. And I sat on the wing trying to stretch my back out a little bit and I'm trying to think what I did wrong. And so I, obviously the, the decision to fly into the storm was wrong, but also the airplane shouldn't have had all these malfunctions. You know, it's supposed to be a very reliable, solid airplane. Why did all of a sudden my whole electrical system fail? And and I looked at my phone um, for the first time since I got into the storm and there were 20 missed calls on there from my mum and dad. And it uh, turns out we had a little extra system put in this airplane called Spider Trucks that sent out a ping every 60 seconds with the aircraft's location, which would be tracked through my website. And then if it, that didn't send out a ping for five minutes, it would send out a, a level one SOS alert. And after 10 minutes, it would send out a level two. Or if the airplane had a significant impact, I think it would send out a level two alert. And so basically my parents had received a text message, uh, an SOS alert saying that Victor Hotel, India Bravo, Charlie, my aircraft has had a tier two SOS alert crashed off the north coast of Tasmania. And so they, they thought I'd died. And I called my dad back, and I'd never heard him cry before, but he picked up the phone and just sobbed into the microphone, and I thought you died, I thought you died. And so that, like, I think we can agree that was a very big failure. Three weeks before I was supposed to take off on this world flight. But I think, as you said, the, the failure in itself, there's no chance you're going to ever do that same thing again, right? And Well, here's the cool part, right? I... I called the engineers and I said, this is what happened and these are all the parts that failed in the aeroplane. How can I fix it if this happens again? Because I was lucky I was over the north coast of Tassie and even though I had made the silly decision, what happens if this problem happens when I'm in the middle of the Pacific, you know, and I can't land the aeroplane? Anyway, they gave me a set of instructions to follow to fix the buildup of static electricity if it happened again. And fast forward four weeks, I was a week into the world flight, taking off out of an island called Pango Pango in American Samoa in the middle of the Pacific Ocean flying north through the intertropical convergence zone, which is basically the last point before the equator that the storms are still knowing which way to spin, a lot of heat, a lot of moisture, a lot of bad weather. 
And sure enough, just like Tassie, I got myself into a situation where I was zigzagging around the storms, but eventually I was encircled by these massive thunderstorms. Had no choice but to try and fly through one. But this time, of course, I looked at where the storms might be, not relying on old weather radar data and picked my way through it. But eventually, same situation, much worse this time. Huge turbulence, instruments failing. I had the fuel system refueling hose with a big metal cap swing around, hit me in the back of the head, tasting blood, vision's blurry, head's throbbing, like just really, really bad situation. And then it came back to me. I just, I knew how to fix it. And I followed the steps the engineers had given me. And I can tell you guys with pretty much certainty that I wouldn't be sitting here chatting to you right now about this experience if I hadn't made that huge mistake and failure in Tasmania. Because it was only because I'd made that mistake that I'd learned the lesson and, and had the skills to fix it when it happened with the, for the real deal on the world flight. It's often the case that we have something happen that's so so impactful and it could be perceived as being bad, right? This bad situation happens. But then when you fast forward a period of time, in your case, it was very, very soon afterwards, four weeks afterwards. But for a lot of us, it may be a year, five years, 10 years later that we go, holy crap, that thing that happened then has given me the resources to overcome this challenge now. And it happens time and time yeah. and time again that in the moment, if we look at the short-term impact, the short-term impact may be bad, but the long-term benefit is, can be huge. I think most people just avoid it. They don't, they don't put themselves in that situation and they avoid the feedback. And I think one of the really confronting and personal things about aviation is when you find yourself in those situations, pilots know they shouldn't be there. They know better. So many times in my career where you're like, how did you just get yourself in this situation? You know Every, every little act decision you made to get here, you knew not to make it. But, but I think what happens, uh, Lockie, when I, I spend a lot of time reflecting on the conditioning you get as a pilot, particularly as a fighter pilot. I think what happens is because you're always going forwards, like you can't pull over and go, oh, thunderstorm, hang on a minute. Let, I'm just going to stop here for five minutes and deal with this. And when your decision making is not mature and you don't have experience, the aeroplane continues to fly you towards badness. The business keeps going. And, and, and metaphorically, you can't stop a business either. It's just the time frames are different. And I, and I think as you matured as a pilot, you in the Air Force, we used to call it push-on-itis. Like, you know, most pilots die because they push into push on in, in a situation that they shouldn't, right? Uh, and, and they deliberately, continually train you to see whether you can make that decision. What did you learn about that specifically? What did you learn about... Pursuing a situation that wasn't good and refining your decision-making because uh, you, you will be a better, more clear and collaborative decision-maker than someone that hasn't flown around the world because of the number of critical decisions that you've made. So how did you develop that skill? How would you explain it to other people? Yeah, I mean, it was very much an iterative process learning how to deal with risk, specifically with aviation, is is you learn, you know, back from when you're learning to fly circuits, taking off and landing, how much wind you can deal with from the crosswind perspective right through to how to deal with massive thunderstorms in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You know, it's baby steps to work your way up dealing with risk. But at the end of the day, we've got to accept that, you know, if you don't take any risks, you're not going to have very much success in, in your life because, unfortunately, that's just the way of life. You know, nothing comes for free. Nothing comes comes easily. So it was very much an iterative process to just learn you know, where I draw the line personally based on my skill set and the comfort I have in a situation. And, and specifically with that situation uh, that I mentioned before, you know, I did learn very much about my own personal limits as a pilot and the airplane's limits so that I could use that to inform future decisions. 
And that was that's decision making. But then aside from the decision making was when I am in a situation, I had learned a, a brand new skill set to deal with a specific problem that might arise. And again, it just came back to the fact that you have to be willing to accept you might fail at something to learn how to be able to do it in the future. And if you're not willing to accept that failure, then you're not going to learn the skill set you need. And I love how they, all of these things that we're talking about today apply your personal life, they apply to how you make decisions in in flying around the world and putting yourself in dangerous situations. They apply to businesses. And, and the one thing you said a second ago, Boo, about the fact that the business is always also moving forward. And that just, that's just got me thinking about the, you know, we had a, a, a whiteboard day with my leadership team yesterday in one of my businesses. And we were talking about one of the team was saying, it feels like we're dragging, like there's this drag going on, which, which means we're not moving forward fast enough. We're not, the business is still going, but everything is taking longer than it needs to be. And it comes down to the fact that it's not that the execution is actually the problem. Now, if you've got a, you know, speed of execution in business is, is important. The thing is obviously putting it in a pressure cooker situation, like uh, flying into thunderstorms in the middle of the ocean and, you know, losing and getting hit in the back of the head with something. And that decision-making process and that ability to execute effectively and quickly is, as I imagine, what's what saved your life in that situation. And in a, in a business context, I know a lot of people listening to these are, are business owners, is it's the same thing. You need to be able to execute faster because you're still moving forward. But if you can make progress whilst you're moving forward and get more done in the same amount of time, it means that you're actually going to be, in, in, you know, for want of a better expression, your business is going to be going up in altitude more and more and more quickly rather than just burning through miles of, and miles of you know, flat um, you know, flying and, and fuel that you're burning and actually lifting your business up as well because all these analogies apply. And the other one was the, you know, flying in the storm, no instruments and stuff. I use that as a reference to how people fly their own businesses in a sense of not knowing their financials, their numbers, you know, how much cash they got in the bank, which is like fuel in the tank. How high are they? You know, where are they? They're going to about to smash into a mountain, but they don't know about it because they can't see their dashboard. They have no metric other than usually their bank balance, is the only metric that most business owners are running off. And it's bloody dangerous for a business. And that's one of the key reasons is execution and lack of understanding your financials is some of the key reasons why most businesses fail in, in, you know, in Australia and other countries so early on in their, in their life cycle. Absolutely. I mean, I've run a, my old man's company now. He started it 25 years ago, but we manufacture medical equipment and send it all around the world. We sell every, nearly every hospital in Australia and New Zealand and then export to another 20 countries globally in a very specialized area of health with endoscopy. And it's, a lot of these lessons, as you said, they apply very much to business. And as pilots, we're trained to prioritize information. And I'm, I'm guessing the training for military pilots, but it was a little bit different to civilian pilots. But they teach you on, on your first day of flying to aviate, navigate, communicate. So aviate means fly the airplane first. That's your first and foremost priorities, be safe in the sky. And then secondly is navigate. So make sure you're knowing where you're going in the right direction. And finally, communicate when you have time. So it means do your radio calls and whatnot. They're very important tasks, all of them, but to do them in the right order is what matters most. Otherwise, you're not going to be a safe pilot. And a lot of the same applies with businesses. Business owners, particularly small business owners, focus very much on passion areas, things that they like doing. You know, my dad focuses a lot on inventing things because he's a creative person. But if you're too busy focusing on how to design the next perfect product, 
you're not focusing enough attention into the financials. And so it's about understanding for your business what your Aviate Navigate Communicate is as well. You know, what are your most important steps, especially in a crisis? What's your, how do you put out the fires first? You know, what's the most important issue you need to focus on? A lot of people don't know that. And it was actually, we had a, uh, uh, a few of an event we ran under our, under the few, a few weeks ago. And, um, Boo played a video of a, of a, you know, an airliner where they, three people, the, the captain, the first officer and the engineer all didn't follow that aviate first rule. Right. And they were communicating and stuff, trying to figure out, and it was a light bulb that had gone out from a, you know, the nose wheel landing gear, which ultimately ended in that plane crashing and killing well over a hundred people because they weren't flying the bloody plane. You know, they weren't aviating first and you're right. Business owners get caught in the weeds, they get caught in the noise, they get caught in just to stuff going on, not actually go. All right, where are we actually going? Like, how am I? How am I flying this 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 plane? This business, you see, we see it all the time. You know, we teach that one of those core those core fundamentals, not in the same language. We teach that in in the inner circle program that I run to business owners, and it, and it changes the way that they they show up day to day in the business. And it can be so so profoundly impactful in a positive way when people follow effectively those principles. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, it's important to know to know your priorities and your metrics in, in a business particularly, but in everything in life. You know, if you're not measuring you against how you were yesterday, are you really improving or are you just killing time? And time's the one thing you can't get back in the world. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Lockie, you know, one of the one of the challenges uh, I think for successful people or people that have big ambitions and they achieve them is answering the question, what's next? And we, I think we fall into the illusion that life is all about A to B. And that we set out to do something, we achieve something, and oh, that's great. That's the end of the story. But it keeps going, right? So, so how do you? How do you? I mean, you're still, you know, a young dude. Yeah, not hanging out with the 1974 crew, uh, like me, and Sean. Uh, yeah, you know, you're 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 still what 24 ish now. So, how do you map out life from here? Like, what is what does good look like? Okay, so that's that's a great question, and it's one my focus area, as I said before, is speaking to millennials and and young people because that's why I set out to do the flight, and that's one of the most common questions. Is you know I don't know what to do, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. I touched on it before with the ice cream flavors, but everyone needs to know for them what's important, and that's the the place to start everything with purpose and direction is to go. What are your values? For me personally, growth, massive value of mine is that I always want to be doing something that's better than I was yesterday, whether that's business, personal life, self-development, financially, I always want to be going up as much as I can. Not always possible, but it's important that I try to attain growth. The second one is being able to be of value to the community, and that means being able to help people. Uh, and then family is an incredibly number one most important value for me. So, that, you know, those are three of my values, but there's several, and I write them down and I have them visible to me most of the day. Because then when I'm trying to figure out what to do, when opportunities get presented to me, which they always are being presented to people in, in different forms, whether that's at school, in business, in life, you need to be able to ask yourself, does it go towards my values? Yes or no? And, and I use the five-step values-based goal-setting technique with students is that once you've established your set of rules to live by, your values, you can identify a, a purpose. You know, what does the world look like in its perfect form to you? And then the third step in that would be, what can I do today? What can I start working towards? What's a goal I can set that would move the world from where it is today to where I want it to be? 
and does it fill those those values criteria? And once you know that, you know, you can start to build up from baby steps of knowing what's important to me, what can I do to make the world better? And then you break it down into a bite-sized chunks with the plan and then finally you execute it. But most people, as I said, they don't take the time to understand what's important to them. And if you don't know what's important to you, what your values are, you're not going to be able to create any sort of goal that's going to lead to you being fulfilled as a person. You can do something to kill time. You can work for someone or you can fulfill a task that needs to be done. But if it's not based on what you said and you told yourself was important, then it's not going to give you that level of fulfillment and satisfaction and help you decide on what's going to be next. Absolutely. And one of the things that I see, the the point of difference that we make, particularly again in, in, in the reference to business, is a lot of what we're doing and, and as, a, as a business owner, we start a business, oh yeah, I want to you know start a business or uh, you know, I'm a, I've become a plumber, you know, I've finished my apprenticeship, I want to go and go to my own. It's, it's about, it's doing. It's just a doing, right? What you're talking about, the, the purpose, the um, the values. You know, this is what we what I call my foundational core. It's a it's an element that I use to teach everybody from. The top half is the being. Who am I being? So purpose is the first part. Your core values, your personal values, are your second. Your definition of success is the third, and then your definition of leadership is the fourth. Like, who do you want to be known as? Who do you aspire to be? Right? Because I think a lot of the, what we're taught is. You need to do this. You need to do that. You know, do more, and you'll make more money, or do this. And it's like, well, but who you're being in the process, and we seem to forget that. And so many people, it doesn't matter what age they are, they haven't actually learnt that they need to understand who they're being first, because that'll help define what you should actually be doing, and more importantly, what you shouldn't. And I've been in that place myself when I wasn't as present or conscious of of who I was being, and I've gone down a path that I couldn't get off that train for a few years because of what I'd created. Even though I wanted to get off the train, I couldn't because I was trapped by the actual businesses that I'd created and were now, I guess, effectively a monster trying to kill me. And it took me a couple of years to unwind myself back out of those decisions I'd made, like going into the proverbial you know, storm. But it took me a long time to, to unwind those decisions I'd made from just doing more and not actually going, yeah, but who do I actually want to be? You know, what, what, do I, what do I want to experience? How do I want the world to be? As you said, it's in, I call that the vision piece, which is the center, because my foundational core is a propeller blade, eight-bladed propeller with the vision in the center, is that your vision of the world is how you want to experience the world. It's not, oh, I want a big house and a car and do this. It's like, you know, what type of relationships do you want? You know, what relationship with yourself, with others? What income streams do you want? What relationship with your business do you want? You know, like do you want it to be providing you with income and having a freedom business, which is what we teach, moving people to a freedom business where they don't have to be there anymore, you know, and then moving them to an investor IQ. So they're actually become an investor, not just a single business owner. And it's, if you don't know who you're being, you're never going to create that because you're just going to keep doing and be busy. Yeah, exactly right. Is you need to ask yourself why, why are you doing things? You know, if it's just to, to be doing it, it's not the right thing for you to be doing. If you've got a, an actual reason for undertaking it, other than I just want to make money then yeah, you're going to be able, and that's, that motivation is, or that purpose is what's going to drive you to get through the hard times as well. Because if you don't have a, a core, like a good foundation as to why you're doing something, as soon as it gets difficult, you've got nothing to, to lean back on, no reason to push through. And motivation is very much practice, not a, something that you can have or be given. But it's, yeah, if you're, you're not able to practice it, if you don't have the foundation. I was going to focus on what you just said then. Say that again about motivation. Motivation is a practice. It's not something you can be given. Okay. I, I really, really like that reference because too many people are like, oh, I don't feel motivated. So, well, you don't feel motivated because you're not freaking doing anything. 
Exactly right. And, and people go and, and see these, we all three of us speak at conferences and, and events and people often will go to those events hoping to be motivated. And I always say, you know, it's not, I can give you a moment of inspiration, perhaps a new way of viewing things, but it's never, I can't give someone motivation because motivation is like a muscle. The more that you work it out, the better you are at doing it. And that's why you've got to continually practice at doing what is important to you because then that's going to build your motivation over time. Yeah. So clearly you've learned a lot in your journey and so far young life in comparison to, uh, to me and Boo here. But if you were to go back, say to a, you know, the 16 year old to 18 year old version of yourself and give yourself a lesson that you've since learnt and go back and teach that to you, what lesson or lessons would you actually go back and, and teach yourself in those times when you were learning and growing and developing and trying to get this thing off the ground? Firstly, it would be that you mentioned it at the beginning. No doesn't mean it's the end. It's usually a the next step for you to get towards a yes from them or someone else because we went through over 400 companies to get the 30 that sponsored us. So I heard a lot of no's. And so, yeah, be comfortable with failing. It's, it's just a learning process. That's all it is. And once you can understand that, you can apply a bit of gratitude to a failure. It takes the venom and the pain right out of it. Um, so that would be the first lesson is that don't be afraid of those setbacks because they're just your, your building blocks, your, your steps. And then secondly, would, I would probably – I would mention to myself that knowing who you are and not who everyone else wants you to be is the most important thing you can focus on at a young age because if you're so busy trying to be everyone else's version of successful and not focusing on yourself, all you're doing is wasting very, very valuable time. So that would probably be the two points because once you know yourself and you're able to fail and get better at following on those metrics, you know, the sky is the limit. You can, you can fail, you can learn, you can grow, you can keep moving but it's not until you accept who you are and accept you're going to fail and then keep working at it. Once you've got that down padding, it's, it's a really good starting block, especially at the age of 16. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. That's awesome, mate. That's uh, absolutely great insight. And bizarrely, literally, my LinkedIn post of the day today was embracing failure. So what do you know? Must uh, must be a, a core theme to living a fulfilling and successful life. Hey, Lucky, I was unusually quiet today, but as I kind of mentioned to Sean, if there's anyone in aviation, I'll I, I be... I shut up. Otherwise, I'll be talking about Maggie checks and various other instrument flying techniques, uh, and it'll get real aviation nerd real quick. But, mate... Thanks so much for translating an incredible life experience that just happened to be in aviation and to, to also just provide some frameworks for people to, to kind of get outside themselves and find something that means something to them and have the courage to go out there and deflect all of those no's because at the end of a of hundred or a thousand no's is the yes you're looking for. That's exactly it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here with you guys. Thanks, mate. Great to chat, Lockie. Cheers. Cheers.
This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.